Shalom Aleichem. Welcome to the Schmooze, the Yiddish Book Center's podcast. I'm Lisa Newman, and today I'm visiting with Henry Sapoznik. Henry is an award-winning producer, musicologist and performer, and writer in the fields of traditional and popular Yiddish and American music and culture. A native Yiddish speaker and child of Holocaust survivors, Henry was the founding director of the Sound Archives of the YIVO Institute for Jewish Research in New York from 1982 to 1995. While there, Sapoznik founded and directed the internationally acclaimed Klez Camp, the Yiddish Folks Arts Program beginning in 1985 for the next 30 years. He won a 2002 Peabody Award for co-producing the 10-part NPR series, The Yiddish Radio Project, drawn from his collection of over 10,000 items, part of the American Folklife Center of the Library of Congress. Currently, he's co-producing for Smithsonian Folkways Records, an anthology of American folk music from California recorded in the 1960s, and a blog series on African-American cantors of the 1920s and 30s. Welcome, Henry. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, and I will just say, I never know where to start in a conversation with you because as your introduction suggests, you've done amazing and important work with everything that you've done. And there's so much I wanna to talk to you about, but I thought maybe we get started. If you could give a brief bit of your backstory and how you got interested and began to work in the field of you know, Yiddish music and radio. Oh, uh, uh, from, uh, as they said, from Kindweisun, um, uh, I grew up, my parents were survivors. My father, Oliver Shalom, was a uh, chazan, the letzte Rovna chazan, he, uh, from the city of Rovna. And I grew up in a real traditional home, um, was uh, in Lubavitch. So I had my Yiddish both at home and, uh, you know, uh, Taich Yiddish. Uh, yeshiva Yiddish, so it 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 came pretty early, and um, what goes around comes around. I came back to um, to doing uh, Yiddish stuff uh, after years of exploring American traditional Southern music, something I still play a lot. So I've been very lucky to have both of the worlds that I immersed myself in to be like active parts, and I have outlets seemingly for doing this kind of critical work. So curious to ask you how things have changed for you in the past 30 years. I think with digitization of so many of the archives um, and this resulting access to this trove of Yiddish culture, and a lot of which I have to say hats off to you because you were really in the early days of this as well. Um, but what are your thoughts looking back on the 30 years in terms of what's being mined and explored and um, where you think this is all going? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. There's been a, a, a really a, a sea change in uh, access platforms to work with primary uh, materials. You know, my years at the, at the YIVO, I was there like for 13 years and, and you know, that was really the epicenter of primary uh, of, uh, materials and, and, and kind of more importantly of uh, human resources. So the actual people who could decode the meaning of that within the, the, the context that they were found. Now, the digital platforms, uh, the, the, the once you know, microfilming of uh, Yiddish newspapers uh, is now available online in such massive uh, quantities. National Library of Israel 
has done a superb job of scanning and uh, and 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 putting on their their website just unbelievable uh, amounts of material stuff that we couldn't uh, have easily uh, gotten access to. I, again, I think especially again going back to the human resource, the thing that has changed and for me is kind of bittersweet, especially coming out of the, the traditional Yiddish music world, is that. The, no more of the original carriers, the people at whose feet that I sat and studied klezmer music and the 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 day to day life of of the music. With them gone, there's a I feel a kind of a wistfulness that you know that maybe I the great days that I enjoyed are over because I that was what drove me to it. It was to be with the old guys. It, it's got to be heartening, though, to see that there's continuity. I mean, I think that it's interesting to see that people are mining this, as I keep saying, um, but and reimagining and, and, and evolving all of this. And that's so much in part thanks to the, you know, a lot of the groundwork that you did, um, you know, and Hank Snetsky has done and, and so many others in at least capturing this and getting it somewhere where it, it can be furthered, which is the natural evolution, I think, of any, um, you know, sort of cultural arts. No, I agree. And I think you had you hit on the two key words is continuity and reimagining. I mean, my thing, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty old school is that uh, I came up my my literacy was equally honed by both studying, you know, Gomorrah and Chumash, you know, at, at Lubavitch for eight hours a day, but but also coming up in the world of Sing Out magazine, Folkways Records. And I saw both of those things. I used, basically, my consciousness was, was honed by the folk music revival, uh, which had as its cornerstone, published anthologies of the music, reissues, um, uh, magazines, uh, events, festivals. And all I did was just apply the same rules that had so successfully worked for the reanimation of folk music, um, uh, Southern old time music. And, and, and the, the models worked. They made perfect sense in a Jewish context so that things like Kleskamp, things like my, I don't know, 35, 45 reissues of uh, complete Klezmer to give people a baseline. I'm more of a old school guy. I'm, I'm not much for the innovation. I kind of want to play it the way I heard it. So that's what I offer. Mm -hmm. and, and then it's up to everyone to personalize it and internalize it on their own terms. Yeah, I think, and I don't think you can dismiss the fact that it really does contribute so much to our understanding of the roots of all of this, um, which again, then leads everybody in different directions. Let's talk a little bit about um, your recent project, if I may, which focuses on, I think it's safe to say, the lesser known story of African-American Jewish cantors. Yeah, I thought everyone knew about this. Uh, <laughs> okay, it's only me. <laughs> that's right. Late to the party. Uh, <laughs> Always. This, actually, the story goes back, for me anyway, the story goes back I've been on the trail of this since since the, the, the 1970s, when I had the great luck to work with uh, American music scholar uh, Dick Spotswood, um, who had 
been one of the, the, the great innovators in terms of uh, documenting um, um, uh, data uh, and, uh, and analyzing data at the Library of Congress. Uh, he had started Bluegrass Unlimited and, and he was embarking on a, um, a seven volume, what would eventually be a seven volume work called uh, Ethnic Music on Records, a, a, a listing of every foreign language, every ethnic record recorded in the United States from 1895 to 1942. Um, tens of thousands of titles. And uh, I was unbelievably uh, lucky that he, 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 I ended up being his, um, his truffle hound, as it were, in the, for the Yiddish uh, a book for the uh, and so you know I could decode uh, the the label copy, so spent years with him going to the archives at CBS, which had been Columbia and RCA, which Victor, and going through uh, the recording ledgers and creating this database of all of their records, and 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 one of the records I documented. Uh, was this 1923 recording on the OK label uh, by Thomas LaRue Jones, uh, uh, billed as Der Schwarze Hasen on the label. It says in Yiddish, Der Schwarze Hasen. And I, 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 I what the, what's, what's this? I mean, it's like, it was totally out of, it was in like in none of the received narratives. It wasn't in the world of our fathers. You know, it wasn't in any of the received narratives about, you know, the the the, the development of American Yiddish culture. Uh, so it was like this, this like this, you know, like this seed that got caught between my teeth. And I said, I got to find this record. I got to find this record. Well, it took 40 years for the record to finally turn up. Um, and and in the, in that time, I mean, I've been looking for it in through all the, what is it, the usual suspects, uh, every archives, Library of Congress, Smithsonian, even the YIVO, where I had been the, the sound archivist. And like, you know, I, when you stop thinking about things, they're actually still working. Uh, 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 this summer on Facebook, um, someone posted, yeah, there's a Facebook Yiddish theater page that I'm on and someone posted something that he had found in going through the newspapers about Thomas LaRue. I said, oh, that's interesting. Someone else knows about this. And immediately, um, uh, uh, the Lawrence Glamberg at Evo posted the sound. I said, you have the record? Uh, and it, anyway, they didn't know when they had gotten the record, but it to finally you have to understand as a, as as a, as a, as, a, as a discographer and and like someone who who really lives through old 78s i mean to me music isn't music unless it has that scratchy you know right. that, i mean that's like oh my god that's so lived in but to finally hear this record after all these years it 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 did something it did something transformational in that in that I heard his voice and the incredible power and immediacy, not just of the instrument that he had. There's unquestionably he has a great instrument, but his capture, his internalization of Yiddish and davening ivre was so moving. It was 
that it validated the entire kind of years long obsession that I had had with this world. But now, of course, it's kind of like an audio Rosetta Stone. It released, um, and, and again, like we were talking about before, the resources. Now, all of these period newspapers, all of that world in which he lived could finally, more or less, uh, be revealed. And, and that's what I like totally gave myself over to, to that. And well, as I say, the rest is history. It's, it's like, it's been a phenomenal reveal because it, it flies directly in the face of every received analysis. It's, you know, they talk about paradigm shifting. Everyone thinks about how Jews mediated black culture through any number, you know, performers, managers, record labels. But, you know, outside of, I think, unrelated, you know, examples like, you know, Paul Robeson's phenomenal performance of Zogna Kamo or, 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 you know, the, the recordings of, of you know, uh, uh, the Ailey Ailey or Kol Nidre by Johnny Mathis. Uh, uh, this, this was a unique the story of Thomas LaRue and the other Schwarze Chazanim is, is, I think, unique uh, in terms of interaction between two minority cultures. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, I think. Um, so maybe I will um, ask you a little bit about what you note on your blog, which is that LaRue's mother um, was a single mother. No mention of a father is made, you write, um, and she insisted he receive a traditional Jewish primary school education, Talmud Torah, and that he and his sister should both be able to pray from a siddhar. Despite her allegiance to Jewish forms and customs, it's not clear if LaRue's mother converted to Judaism, despite LaRue saying he had a bar mitzvah at the proper age. So definitely there are deep roots for him, yes? That was from um, an article in the African-American newspaper, The New York Age. It was an interview with its editor. And it's like most creation myths, it's, it's, it's fully, it, 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 it turns back in on itself. It, it reinforces itself. And that made perfect sense to me until it got matched by period census materials. Um, and uh, I, I, I was joined, I have been very lucky that since I put the blog up, it has reached other shut-ins like myself who, who should have better things to do, but have taken on themselves joining me in this, in this search, uh, including this, this man Chaim Motzen in, 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 in Israel, who uh, without any prodding did this phenomenal genealogical research on the, you know, the Jones family. Very simple to do genealogical research on the name Jones, because there's so few people with that name. So um, he revealed an incredible amount of material that helped to kind of clear out the brambled underbrush of the genealogy. And turns out that the mother story it does not seem to be true, that his mother actually died when he was like four years old. Oh. And um, yeah, it was like, it's, it's, and that's what's so great 
about having access to both of these parallel materials, the, 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 you know, the anecdotal, the newspaper, and the, the more bland, you know, genealogical, um, uh, the uh, state census um, draft uh, board in the notices. It's, um, so it, it looks like without this, without this mamalushin, almost literally, um, uh, uh, creation myth, the story about how Thomas LaRue Jones came into the deep end of the pool of Yiddishkeit is even more bizarre because it's even less linear. Um, how did he learn? I mean, he, in, 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 in some of the interviews, he, he makes it clear that he learned his chazanis as did a lot of people at that time, he learned his chazanis off 78s. Uh, and, and you hear, you hear Yosla Rosenblatt in, in some of his singing, but how did he develop such an, an astoundingly accurate uh, Yiddish? One side of the record is in Yiddish and the other side is, uh, is uh, davening. It's a cantorial setting. Um, it, it, I, I did a Henry Higgins with some uh, 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 linguistic Yiddish linguistic friends of mine, and I, you know, I, I sent them the disc. I said, "Hey, tell me about this guy. What, what's what's going on?" And people, said, "Oh, probably from Warsaw. You know, he has a theater background. You can hear he's rolling his R's and his vavesh, and you can't. It, impossible." The shibboleth that he transcends in, in this recording is, reveals a, a, a level of engagement that is just, I don't know, it's just stunning to me. Do, do you have any clue what drew him to this? The, he, I, I, this is the one thing that no amount of genealogical study, no amount of census figures, no anecdotal newspaper previews or reviews or profiles will answer. What, what was his motivation? I mean, on, on, and here again, let me say that anything I say about Thomas LaRue Jones as becoming a Schwarzachazend and giving him his life basically singularly over to that pales in comparison to trying to find the rationale of how Goldie de Schwarze Chazente, how, how Goldie Mae Sellers invented a woman black cantor. That's even more weird, but I digress. <laughs> um, LaRue Jones, um, uh, I don't know. It's like this weird confluence of, you know, you have to keep in mind that when, when Thomas LaRue Jones first started performing as, as a Schwarzer Chaz in 1916, 1918, at the exact same time that he is doing this performance where he's totally internalized this Ashkenazic performance, and it, you know, to totally reads that, at the same time, the greatest black entertainer on the American stage, uh, 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 Burt Williams, appearing in the, the Ziegfeld Follies could only appear on the stage in blackface. So, so you have the two ends of American popular entertainment happening simultaneously, and it's all around the, the, the definition of who a black man is. 
And, and so it's for me, having just finished my last reissue was a, a box set where I examined the influence of blackface minstrelsy on subsequent blues and jazz and country music. So I'm just seeing like another layer of this dynamic between these two minority cultures and how a, a context was created in terms of variety entertainment and novelty and uh, that someone with a vision, someone with a, an outsized sense of, of, of self or humor can invent a platform that historically has never before uh, existed. It's, it's, it is fascinating. And again, I'm going to go back to something that I read on your blog, which goes to, I believe, what must be one of his first uh, experiences singing. Um, and you, you write, while at the synagogue during the service, the cantor was taken ill. So LaRue quickly put on a prayer shawl and before the congregation could orient itself, took to the lectern and in a soprano voice began to intone the prayers. Now, I believe he is what? How many years old at this point? Well, here again, you know, you just reminded me. I I, I got to go back and update the blog. I have learned so much. That's from August. Okay. That's, that's like a lifetime ago. <laughs> I mean, really, it's and and I really appreciate this because I've been moving forward so much. I forgot. I feel like a snail, and I've left behind this this trail that I have to again. This story, which I've seen quoted in a couple of different um, um, newspaper accounts. So I give it a certain amount more validity. But again, I'm, I, I, the, here's a couple of things. There were a couple of nagging mysteries that still, some of them still nag every day. Like, for example, is Thomas LaRue, was he in fact Jewish? Um, um, and, and, and again, what was in it for him uh, 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 to, to do this, but the, the, the idea of him uh, inventing uh, this, this platform for himself and what better, what better creation myth than, than, than it's, this is 42nd street, you know, the Warner Baxter movie, Ruby Keeler and, and the stars just broken her ankle and, and they take this, girl out of the, the chorus and she becomes the star overnight. It's right out of the Yiddish theater. Mm. It's right out of the Yiddish theater. And it's a wonderful story that clearly would have great resonance with, uh, with the people to whom it was directed, showing that LaRue Jones clearly understood his audience as his many, 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 many performances would. So, the creation myth of him, you know, um, uh, 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 substituting for the ill chazan, um, it's great. It's, it's anecdotal, but I've yet to find, I've yet to find anything that connects Thomas LaRue Jones to an active Jewish, uh, to, to a synagogue, to a community, to a congregation. Though I find him, intimately involved in, in, in being part of the, 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 the everyday life of a real Jewish community. Yeah, uh, I've, yeah like, I mean, I found an article of him about uh, saying that he would be giving Haftorah lessons to orphans. Think about this, he's giving Haftorah lessons to orphans 
Um, and and one where he's singing a, a benefit for the um, for the erection of a um, of a mikvah. That's really, really, really deep community stuff. That's not that's not just a concert, you know, on a Saturday night. So it's it's frustrating. It, it's I imagine it's frustrating, and I I mean I think this is one of the, um, the beauties of the internet, if I may, which sometimes I find to be the most yeah you know, like please go away so I can have my life back again. But um, it also allows for this, as you say, you know, what was um, one thread in August, given that the entire world is, you know, has access to this and can, and can fill it in, in terms of the gaps and evolve the story is such a gift to us all because you're just reaching in ways that you never could before. Um, but I'd also go back to, you know, there, this may be creation myth. Some of this may be urgent uh, urban legend, as we say. But I'm kind of struck, and maybe this is too long a conversation, but in what I read, it says, you know, before the congregation could orient itself. Now, there's a lot packed into that. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great article. Yeah. Um, so let me, before I have to let you go, Henry, um, let's talk about the Headstone Project, how it came to be, the plans. Um, I was really moved by this when, when I read about it. And thank you for your support. I really appreciate it. It's the um, least you can do. It's great work. Thank you. Well, it was, again, Chaim Motsen, who I mentioned before, I've got a couple of people who have become, you know, they're just kind of joined in on the research and um, a combination, he had uh, identified um, the, um, uh, the, uh, the cemetery where, where LaRue Jones was buried and, and had the, uh, the, the people at the cemetery provide, uh, to provide us with, with pictures. And, and I was just stunned that it was, it was unmarked and it, it the, the grave was unmarked. And it, you know, around the same time I had gotten an obituary uh, of 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 Larue Jones and and in it, it it mentioned the um the the cemetery, but it had his last known address. This is this is this is weird. And and I looked it up. I looked the address up on Zillow, and the house still exists. And and I I had this. I, I don't know. Like you say, it's the the new the new information platforms. I had this singularly eerie experience of walking through his house. Mm. You know, it's like walking through the house of the of the dead Thomas Larue Jones was like. So anyway, uh, saw that the um, the 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 fact that you know there's no headstone. It's it's not even a. I mean, there's a marker. Because they have to be able to, you know, they they had to um, go through uh, their old maps because uh, that part of the cemetery is just not as. But it showed that it was one step above a potter's field. I mean, he was in poverty, clearly. Um, the, the 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 house um, um, and and so it just didn't. It just seemed linear. I mean, it just seemed I'm deriving so much. You know, I mean, Thomas LaRue Jones has really reached out over the decades and reached into my life. And so, um, you know, that's a perfectly legit thing to give him, you know, that recognition. So this is exciting. Uh, uh, P.S. 
reached the goal in 48 hours. Wow. Um, now I'm just keeping it going and uh, it just, it, I, you know what I'd like to do, it occurs to me, you know, obviously, I mean, it's a modest goal. It's like a footer, but I, I wouldn't mind a, a, a regulation, you know, headstone. But uh, the, the thing is, it's going to move ahead now. And I'm so excited that people like yourself uh, uh, got, you know, just like really saw the underlying message here. Um, but the thing that I really would like to do which I think is the real kicker. And I love how irony is like always a co-producer. I'd like to put on the headstone um, the music uh, to the one record that LaRue Jones made, the one side of the 78. And it's this song that he published himself in 1920. Um, it was Sholem Sekunda wrote the music for it called Faulilnit Dein Hoffnung Redjit. Don't give up hope, Mr. Chu. And, and I'm, it's so amazing to, be, to think that I'll be able to put that on the headstone and to say, don't give up hope. He, here he was unknown, forgotten for all these years. Don't give up hope. You'll be rediscovered. You'll be, so it's, it's, it's kind of cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Henry, before I let you go, um, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners um, where they can go to learn more about your work and to view your blog, and, and maybe we can play out with a little bit of music. All of the above. Uh, very simple. It's uh, www.henrysaposnik, S-A-P-O-Z-N-I-K, one word, henrysaposnik.com. And the blog and uh, my stuff on Yiddish radio, I have a bunch of stuff on there. So I'm uh, very happy to have the company. Great. Um, so before you play the music, I just want to give you a huge thanks for all the work that you've done, for all the work you continue to do, uh, for taking the time today to be on the schmooze. And I look forward to um, many more uh, conversations with you in the virtual realm. So let's hear a little bit. And thanks again. You bet. Thank you. Here we go. You've been listening to The Schmooze, a production of the Yiddish Book Center in Amherst, Massachusetts. To subscribe to this and other podcasts, visit YiddishBookCenter.org. I'm Sarah Blakefeld. Be well, be healthy, and tune in again soon. (laughs) 